Well, good morning to those of you who are watching uh, online at home. Good morning. Uh, we miss you and look forward to worshiping in person with you uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing. And uh, for those of you who braved the storm, uh, it is good to see your faces here today. And I do want to just recognize our, our volunteers who are serving this morning, uh, David in the booth and uh, Ed and Marcel back in the classroom. Um, their dedication to serve on a day like today and brave the roads, just want to Honor that and, and thank those brothers and sisters for that and for their commitment. Uh, well, you can, oh, and, and my mom, forgot my mom helping in hospitality. I owe my mom a lot more than just one thank you, that's for sure. Um, well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 20 is where we'll be, verses 17 through 28. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we have some black hardback ones around the room. You're welcome to use those. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of those with you. We would love to bless you this morning with your own copy of God's Word. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Um, now, as, as we uh, live this life, we're all human beings. I think we would agree that without a doubt, one of the most difficult parts of humanity's existence, of, of living this life, is suffering. Now, there's not a person on earth whose life has not been touched by suffering in some degree. Now, some people suffer more, some people suffer less, but we've all tasted the bitterness of life in a world affected by sin's destructive effects. And, and when you've been in the middle of a trial or, or when you've been in the middle of a time of suffering, what are some of the thoughts that start to run through your head about God? What are some of the thoughts that start to run through your head about God? Do you wonder if he's cruel? Do you wonder if he is punishing you for something as you go through those difficulties? Do you, do you wonder if he cares about what you're going through? Do you wonder why God would allow something like this? Do you, do you wonder why, oh God, do you not stop this trial and change these circumstances. Um, sometimes we even think, I deserve better than what I'm going through right now. And believe it or not, these are all responses that biblical characters have had to suffering as well. So you're, you're not alone if you've ever had those thoughts. And in our text this morning in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples and us about the humility and suffering that will be required of, of both him and them. And, and at the same time, we'll see that while suffering is the immediate result of sin and evil in the world, we'll see that God uses suffering in the lives of his children to make us more like Christ and prepare us for an eternal weight of glory. Now let's read our text, starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, 
you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me as we hear it this morning? Our God and our Father, we thank you for the Scriptures. We thank you for the Bible. Lord, that they contain the words of eternal life and reveal to us what is necessary for life and godliness. They reveal to us who you are, who we are, what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come to this text this morning, we see a glimpse into your plan for the lives of your children. A plan that inevitably includes suffering and humility. And our God, we ask that as we consider the teaching of Jesus this morning, that you would give us ears to hear his words, that you would reveal to us, Lord, the areas in our own heart where perhaps we are not humble, or those areas where perhaps we are rebelling against the suffering that you may have us going through right now. Father, we pray that you would be at work in us, that just as Jesus says to the disciples, that we would seek to be like the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring your Holy Spirit to bless the word as it goes forth today and help me, Lord, to preach your word in a way that honors you and helps your people. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, to better approach this text and to really kind of understand the impact of the text, we're going to go a little bit out of order this morning. And normally we just go verse by verse, and that's, that's really what we're going to do today. Um, but we're actually going to start at verse 20 and then go back to verses 17 and 19 uh, in just a little bit. Uh, three points in this sermon this morning, the title of which is The Savior's Cup of Suffering. Uh, in verses 20 and 22, we see a mother's presumptuous request for power. Uh, verses 17 and 19 and 22 and 23, we see the Savior's necessary cup of suffering. And finally, 24 through 28, we see a corrective towards Christ-like humility. Now, Jesus and his disciples have been making the journey uh, from the north of Galilee down to Jerusalem. And as we go verse by verse, that destination gets nearer and nearer. And in fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 21, uh, we'll see Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. Uh, but as we heard in 17 through 19, Jesus has just told his disciples it will not be a welcome that lasts very long. And as Jesus and his disciples are making their way into Jerusalem, verse 20 tells us that the mother of Zebedee comes up to him with her sons. Now, that would be James and John. This is Zebedee's wife. And the three of them approach Jesus. And interestingly, we've had no mention of the wife of Zebedee until now. But when we look at Matthew 27, we find out that she's actually a disciple of Jesus and that she's probably been traveling with Jesus for at least some of his earthly ministry. She's heard a lot of his teaching. Um, and she approaches him with a request. And she kneels before Jesus, verse 20, and asks him for something. This is a posture of humility. Now Jesus, in verse 21, asks her, what, what do you want? What is it that you're approaching me about? And she lays out her petition before Jesus. Say that these two sons of mine will sit on your right hand and your left in your kingdom. Now this is, this is quite a request. Quite a request. On a positive note, we see that she has genuine faith, right? She does believe that Jesus is the Messiah. She does believe in the truth of his kingdom. Um, she's not a pretender. She's a genuine disciple. But we also see that she has a, a pretty grave misunderstanding about Jesus, his work, 
and his kingdom. And that's emphasized especially when we consider everything Jesus taught in chapters 18 and 19 about how you must become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven and how those who are least in the kingdom are actually the greatest. And in light of all of that, she approaches Jesus and says, Give my sons this position of power, this position of authority. It seems that she has the same misunderstanding as the rest of the disciples. Uh, that Jesus' kingdom is a, a political one, perhaps, centered on power and earthly influence. And, of course, we, we see in the text, right, she's a mother. She's a mother. She wants the best for her sons, right? She wants the best position for them. Uh, what mother wouldn't want that? She, she wants to see that they have power and influence in the Messiah's kingdom. Um, and, and she probably does believe her boys are the best disciples out of the 12, right? They're special. They're special. And so she says, Jesus, give my sons this position of authority, this special spot. Now, we might think that, that James and John are embarrassed by their mother, right? They're like, oh, no, there goes mom, you know, approaching Jesus with this crazy request. Um, but, but interestingly, when we look at Mark 10, same event, same account, the mother's not even mentioned. She's not even mentioned there. James and John are the ones in that account who are approaching Jesus. And, and even as we look in our text this morning, we'll see that they are equally invested in this request, right? As much as their, their mother is. They're not embarrassed. They want the same thing. But again, given that all three of them, James, John, and their mother, have heard Jesus' teaching on ambitious power-seeking, this question is, is just painfully awkward, right? It's poorly timed. It's like everything went in one ear and, and out the other. They're still seeking power and influence. When Jesus has made clear again and again and again that that's antithetical to his kingdom. But yet they still seek this. Now they do have genuine faith, right? They, they're genuine disciples, but they're ignorant, right? They're still ignorant. Um, and, and this is often the case with Christians who are overly occupied with earthly concerns, right? Genuine faith in Jesus perhaps, but, but often trying to incorporate Jesus with their earthly pursuits. And, and when that happens, there is no growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. In reality, though, Jesus has a far different agenda for his disciples than power. And because of that, Jesus says what he does in verse 22. You do not know what you're asking. You do not know what you're asking. And in the Greek, this is actually plural. He's, he's talking not just to one person here, but to the, to the group. Y'all don't know what you're asking. They're ignorant. They, they have such a small understanding of Jesus and his mission and his kingdom. They're fixated on one tiny little bit of the picture. They do not realize that the road to glory is paved with suffering. They do not realize the cost of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in some ways, it's like the child who says, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. And they don't realize the, the thousands of hours of physical, academic, training that's required, right? The incredible intelligence, reflexes, physical fitness that are, that are necessary to become an astronaut. They have no idea, right? Or the child who says, I want to be a police officer, right? Not having any idea that part of academy means they're going to be tased and pepper sprayed, right? They don't know what they're asking. They don't know what will be required of them. But Jesus will teach them. And as we look at verse 22, we see that Jesus now is asking them a question. This brings us to point two, the Savior's necessary cup of suffering. He asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? Is this a cup of victory? Is it a cup of feasting? The disciples maybe don't realize it, but, 
the cup that Jesus refers to here is actually described in graphic detail in verses 17 through 19. Let's look back up there for just a moment. Now, as we saw before, Jesus is set on going to Jerusalem, and he knows full well what will happen there. And he tells his disciples in, in these verses, for the third time predicting his death. And we see that he does not go to be victoriously welcomed and celebrated by the Jews. He does not go to be honored and revered. He goes to suffer and die. For the third time, he predicts his suffering, his death, how he will be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, verse 18, who will then illegally sentence him to death. And then he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, verse 19, where he will be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And this will not be a quick process. The mocking will last for hours. He will be beaten. He will be whipped with a whip filled with sharp fragments of bone and glass that will rip and shred the flesh from his back. And then he will, after carrying uh, his cross through the city, will be publicly executed in the most disgraceful way possible. Verse 19, crucifixion. A method reserved for the worst criminals. A method of unimaginable pain. The Romans uh, even disdained crucifixion so much they would not take credit for inventing it. They wouldn't take credit for using it. A large nail through each wrist and a nail through both feet hanging there as you eventually suffocate to death. That is the cup that Jesus will drink. That is the cup that Jesus will drink. What, what appeal is there in that? The disciples think they're going to drink a sweet cup of delicious, luxurious, victorious wine. But in reality, the cup that awaits Jesus is nothing of the sort. It is a, a cup filled with the bitter wine of humility, of pain, of disgrace, of sorrow, of suffering, of death. A cup so terrible and so awful that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, if it at all be possible, remove this cup from me. If there be any other way, then I have to drink that cup. Please, Lord, open that door instead. But not my will be done, but yours. That is the cup that Jesus will drink. But why? Why was it necessary for Jesus who never sinned against anybody or who did, never did anything wrong, why is it necessary that he of all people would have to drink such a bitter cup? Well, there is no other reason than this. Because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, willingly took on humanity in order to willingly lay down his life, in order to willingly die in the place of sinners like you and like me, to willingly suffer the punishment that we have earned and deserve for our sin and our breaking of God's law, to pay that price for us. That's why Jesus goes to drink this cup. We call this penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus bears the penalty. That's the word penal there. He bears the penalty that you and I deserve as a substitute in our place to make atonement, to cover our sin and law-breaking so that we might have peace with God. Jesus is willing to suffer that unimaginable pain and agony and sorrow to do that for you, to do that for me. That is how much he loves his people. A friend, in light of that, will you not come to him today knowing what he would suffer to reconcile you to God? Will you not repent of your sin, which he died for and trust him to save you? 
He was willing to drink that cup so that you might not have to. Now Jesus does say at the end of verse 19, of course, that he'll be raised on the third day. And, and indeed, three days later after his burial, he does rise in glorious victory over death, sin, and Satan. But when does that happen? That doesn't happen before the suffering and the sorrow and the death. That happens after. The cup comes first. And so when Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And after all, they, they feel entitled to the glory. So, are you able to drink from the same cup? And we see how little they understand when they say, we are able. We see how little they realize what is going on when they say, yes, we can, we can drink from that cup. But at the same time, Jesus in verse 23 does affirm their response. He says to them, you will drink my cup. Speaking to James and John, you will drink my cup. They don't realize the significance of it, but James and John will, in fact, drink from the same cup of suffering and sorrow as their Lord. They're not ready for it now. And in fact, when Jesus is arrested and betrayed, they will run and flee from him. They're not ready for it now, but when the day to drink that cup comes, they'll be much different men. And the Bible actually tells us what happens to James. Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, after James has been imprisoned a number of times, the Bible says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of Jesus, uh, brother of John, excuse me, with the sword. James was persecuted and executed by Herod, murdered for the sake of his Lord, drinking from the same cup. And the Bible describes less of what happened to John, but Revelation describes how he was exiled to the barren island of Patmos. Now, church tradition also claims that the Roman authorities unsuccessfully attempted uh, in, in numerous different ways to kill John, putting him in boiling oil or trying to poison him. But like James, John also suffered greatly, drinking from the same cup as his Lord. And we may make the mistake of, of thinking that well, that, was, that was just for the apostles. Drinking from that cup, that was just for them. That's not really for us today. Um, we live in 21st century America, right? Those things don't happen anymore. Um, if, if that is your understanding, then, then it would make sense that perhaps you would assume God is doing something he shouldn't when you are going through suffering. Because the Bible emphasizes many times that suffering and sorrow and humility and disgrace, that's not just for the apostles, that's a cup that all disciples must at least sip from. It is it's part of the package. It's what paves the pathway of discipleship, what lines the narrow path. It's, it's not the only part of being a Christian, of course, but it is a central aspect of being a Christian. And, and that suffering is not always martyrdom. It's not always persecution, though it certainly can be. But that suffering can include sickness as our bodies break down, as we, as we experience serious physical pain and weakness. It could be relational trouble when other people sin against us. It can be the loss of a loved one or a friend as we suffer the effects of death. At times, it can even be the results of our own sin, the consequences when we reap what we've sown. The necessity and promise of suffering is a major theme in Scripture. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 speaks of how we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. That's what Paul said. Sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Similarly, Paul tells Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And later goes on to state that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 And of course, who can forget Jesus' own teaching to his disciples back in Matthew 16? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those aren't, those aren't phrases that describe great comfort and ease, are they? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Perhaps, though, the best verse that captures it is Romans 8, 16 and 17. Let's look there briefly. Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17. Now, the Apostle Paul is speaking of our sonship as Christians. And in light of that reality, here's what he says in Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see the connection there? That's not just for the apostles. That's not just for super Christians. Verse 17, provided we suffer with him, applies to all those who are adopted by God. If we are legitimate children of God, if we are brothers with Christ, if we are made to share in Jesus' incredible inheritance, then we will bear the marks of Jesus. And what are those marks? Suffering. Suffering. But there's a couple of vital things to remember, right? When we just say, okay, suffering's part of the Christian life, just white knuckle your way through it, you just got to deal with it. That's not very encouraging. It's not very helpful, is it? It's kind of, kind of fatalistic. And the Bible paints a much different picture. Now, the first thing that we need to remember is suffering as, as Christians is not purposeless. It's not purposeless. It's not just a random accident of the universe where things just didn't line up for you that one day. Um, no, there is a divine purpose behind our sufferings. God sanctifies us. That means he makes us more like Jesus through our sufferings. He humbles us through our sufferings, doesn't he? When we are uh, maybe relying too much on ourselves or saying, look at all this this good that I have done for myself, God very quickly humbles us through affliction. He draws us near to himself when we suffer. When we realize that, oh, I can't put my hope in that person. I can't put that hope in my job or my finances or my health. My hope is only in the Lord. And we draw near to him. So there's a divine purpose behind our suffering, and it is always a good purpose. If we were to read on in Romans 8, we would read in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That, that phrase there, they work together for good, that's not your idea of good or my idea of good. That's God's idea of good. And God's idea of good is that he would be glorified and that we would be made like his son, which is what Paul goes on to say in those following verses. So we can know that while we are enduring suffering, God has a good purpose behind it. And God always accomplishes his purposes. Amen? Amen. A second, we need to remember that suffering is not ultimate. It's not the final word. 
And this really sort of ties into the first thing we, we need to remember, but God uses suffering to prepare us for the eternal joy that is set before us. It's not the last word. Suffering doesn't get the final say. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. Some of the most encouraging verses in Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And in these verses, we, we get this window into the, the mysterious providence and, and purpose of God. And we may not understand how all the details are working out, but we can get a very clear idea of what God's big purpose in our sufferings is. Looking down at verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our afflictions don't always feel light and momentary, do they? Sometimes they feel like they will never, never end, or like we cannot bear up under them anymore. But in God's perspective, God knows that they are light, that we will not be crushed to despair under them. He knows that they are momentary, that they will not last forever, because they are in His hands. He set the boundaries for them. Now that doesn't mean, again, we, we, we don't grieve over suffering when it happens. It doesn't mean we can't weep and lament. We should. But what these verses teach us is that as Christians, we have no reason to despair to hopelessness. We have no reason to lose heart. Why? Because we can remember what God is doing and why He's doing it. He's working out a good purpose in the midst of things. What is that? That we would be prepared and that it would be prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice the contrast there. The afflictions light and momentary. Light and momentary. Like chaff in the wind. The glory that is before us, eternal, weighty. It will never be moved. We will never lose it. It will never be out of our reach. But God will bring us safely to it and it will be our eternal rest as we enjoy His presence forevermore. When we put it in that perspective, our, our sufferings really do appear to be light and momentary compared to that eternal weight of glory, don't they? And sometimes that's the perspective we need while we're in the midst of it. Now, James and John will drink that cup of sorrow. They will drink that cup of suffering, and they will drink deeply from it. But look what Jesus says next to them. It is not up to him to determine who sits at his left and his right hand. He says that's up to the Father alone. The Father is the one preparing such seating. But I want to let you in on a, a little secret. Um, the Father has not chosen just one or two really great Christians from history to occupy the right and the left hand seats uh, in the kingdom of Jesus. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 6-7 through 7 says. That the Father has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Who, who's the us there? That's all Christians. Not just one or two. That's all Christians, every believer. All Christians are seated with Christ on his right and his left hand, reigning with him. That position the Father has given to all believers. 
So, so what need is there for the disciples here to be clambering over one another, right, trying to get to the best seats or, or going behind the other disciples' backs to get in? God has already assured that position for his people. And that is something we can be content with. Something far better than any earthly status or position that we might pursue. Unfortunately, this, this pursuit of status and temporal gain and power is not just in James and John's heart. It's in the heart of the other disciples as well. They need a corrective towards Christ-like humility. And that brings us to our third point. Corrective towards Christ-like humility. Now, we compare the church sometimes to, to a family. And when we look at verse 24, uh, it, it looks like there's 12 brothers not getting along. Now, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, at James and John. Uh, we see in verse 24, the other 10 disciples, they, they hear about James and John's request. They catch wind of what's going on. They're not happy about it. They're indignant. They're upset that these two brothers are trying to take the best seats in the kingdom. Um, what's the reason that the other 10 would be indignant? Why would they be indignant? Because they want those seats too, right? They want to sit at Jesus' right and left hands. They want the exact same thing. Their hearts are in the exact same place. But Jesus, in his, in his wisdom, sees this as a teaching opportunity. And in verse 25, we see that he calls them to him and begins to teach them. And, and he doesn't just speak to James and John here. He's speaking to all the disciples, all 12 of them, because they're all suffering the same disease. And Jesus points out that the rulers and leaders of the Gentiles, verse 25, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Those, those Greek verbs there communicate this idea of bringing power down from above. In other words, the, the Gentile leaders seek to control those that are under them. Right? They use their authority to suppress those who are their subjects. They, they want to maintain their power and hold that over those who are under them. And Jesus essentially says that's the way the world handles power. That's the way the world handles authority. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And so he clearly says to his disciples in verse 26, It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. This obsession with status and power that the disciples have has no place amongst the disciples of Jesus. It's antithetical to the entire mission and message of Jesus. And Jesus elaborates in verses 26 and 27. He brings back that principle of the first becoming last and the last being first. He brings that back into the equation here, slightly rewords it and puts it in a little bit of a different light, but at its heart, it's the same teaching that we've seen over the past several weeks. Instead of pursuing this authority and being Lord over their peers, Jesus says instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You who are pursuing power and status, you who desire to be known as great in God's eyes, the way to be considered great is to serve others rather than yourself, to make yourself as a servant to others. To do what Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the exact opposite of what the disciples are doing here, isn't it? And in a similar way, in verse 27, Jesus says that those who desire to be first must make themselves their slaves. 
right, must make themselves even lower than a servant, a slave. In, in Roman society, slaves were the lowest social level. You, you couldn't go lower than that. This is the same as making yourself last, making yourself a slave. And Jesus says that's what God actually recognizes as great. That right there. And when we think about it, um, will it entail self-denial to be a servant to others? Will it require suffering, perhaps, to make yourself a slave to others? Very likely, especially if they are people who are not kind, people who are not gracious, people who are not gentle. Uh, will it be comfortable and fun to put others before yourself? That's not always fun. But we have to realize that Jesus is not just making up random ethical statements here. He, he's not just coming up with nice little proverbs and sayings that, um, that, that our society can just grab onto to live in peace with one another. He, he's not just making up nice little moral rules. Uh, the basis for Jesus' teaching here is not theoretical. It is profoundly and deeply real. In fact, the basis for Jesus' teaching is his own life and ministry and work. Look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am the standard. I am the example that you are to follow. And look what he says, the Son of Man. We've seen this several times in Matthew, but that's a, a, a figure from Daniel who is this glorious, kingly, a messianic divine figure to whom all the kingdoms of the earth are given. And yet Jesus right here says that figure who has and is worthy of all authority and power and glory and might came not to be served, but to serve. And it gets even more profound when we think about who Christ came to serve. He didn't come to serve people that were greater than him. He came to serve tax collectors. He came to serve uh, Gentiles. He came to serve rebels and sinners and lepers. He came to serve his enemies. We can't forget that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus washed Judas's feet too. We really cannot grasp the depth of humility that our Lord willingly humbled himself to by serving others when he himself should have been served. That's a complete reversal of what we're used to, isn't it? Culture tells us to get rid of difficult people from our lives. To love ourselves, take care of ourselves first. But Jesus says, no, serve them. Our pride, our, our flesh tells us, ignore and avoid the weird people. Right? The dirty people, whatever it may be for you. But Jesus says, Count yourself as their slave. Count their, yourself as their slave. And what is Jesus' ultimate act of service? It's not just foot washing. Verse 28 tells us, to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. We struggle to let people go in front of us in line at the grocery store. And Jesus is giving his life as a ransom 
for wretched sinners. Jesus' ultimate act of service was his death on the cross. A ransom is a, a deliverance price. What must be paid in order to set another free. And Jesus says he's going to pay that price with his own life that sinners, people who are rightly condemned as guilty, would be set free and forgiven and ransomed. It's incredible that Jesus, as great as he is, would do such a humble thing for people who are completely undeserving of it for us. And this verse raises two questions we'll, we'll deal with briefly. These are a little more theological in nature, but they're, they're worth our time. The first question is, uh, who is the ransom paid to? Right? Of course, a ransom is paid to one who holds another captive. Right? Um, we, we think of hostages, of course, in our, our modern context. And there's a bit of a parallel there, perhaps, but um, there is another party who holds somebody captive, and the ransom must be paid to set that captive free. And um, some theologians throughout history have argued that the ransom's paid to Satan, right? That uh, Satan is the one who receives the ransom payment. But um, one, there's no biblical basis for this view, right? It's just not really mentioned in Scripture, and so it's hard to say that's what the Bible says when we can't find that anywhere. Um, second, it's also difficult to think that God would owe Satan anything. Others have said that God is the one that the ransom is paid to, and that's, that's closer, I think, but um, that still has a bit of difficulty with it as well. We are accountable to God, but the Bible doesn't really describe us as being captive to God as unregenerate people apart from Christ. That, that doesn't seem to be our status. And it would seem strange for God to ransom us from himself. Uh, a better view, I would argue, is that the ransom is not being paid to a literal being like God or Satan, but rather that it is uh, a ransom being paid figuratively to the law of God, which doesn't exist apart from God per se. But the law is the one that the Bible says we are in bondage to and that we are captive to. Uh, in other words, the payment of Christ's life as ransom was given to ransom us out from under the curse of the law. That's what Paul describes in Galatians 3. Verses 12 and 13, when he says, The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Later on, in the same chapter, 23 and 24, Paul says, Before faith came, we were held captive to the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. We see there that the law, figuratively speaking, kept us captive because we could not keep it. And so we had this debt that we owed to God through the law. And it seems then that Christ's ransoming of us comes through his obedience to the law, right? His life and obedience satisfies all of the law's demands for righteousness and his death, which pays the penalty for our violations, ransoms us sets us free from the curse of the law, erases our debt of sin, and the words of Revelation 1.5, frees us from our sins by his blood. And so I, I think that's probably the best way to understand this here. The ransom payment is being made that we would be set free from our bondage to the law, instead being justified by grace 
by the work of Jesus Christ instead of our own efforts. The second question this verse raises is, is a little more controversial. What's meant by many? Christ says he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. Now really, this is a question about the extent of the atonement, the extent of, of how Christ's work on the cross is applied to sinners. And there's two ways that Christians generally land on this issue. Um, some Christians believe that Jesus died to make salvation and atonement available, but he does not apply it to anybody unless they come to receive it. So it would be like if I baked a cake, and I put the cake on a table, and I put a loudspeaker that says, free cake for anybody who wants some, and then I walked away. And then if you, you're walking down the street, you see that cake, you say, oh, I'd like some free cake. It's there, it's available, but you have to go get it in order to have some cake. Um, it, it's a potential atonement, in other words. It's there, it's waiting, but it's not actually applied to anybody definitively until they come to get it. Uh, this view is often called general atonement because it's available for everyone in general, but not applied specifically to people. The other way that Christians land is that Jesus' atonement is not made available in a potential sort of sense, but that Jesus' atonement for our sin is actually accomplishing something. That when Jesus dies on the cross, he is actually paying for defined known sins and for defined known sinners. Uh, this would be like if I baked a cake and I had a list of people and I brought them a piece of cake. I came up to you, I said, here's your cake. Here's your cake. Here's your cake. It's not potential they're waiting for you, but I'm bringing it to you. I'm, I'm giving you that cake directly and individually. It's an effectual atonement, but it's, it's applied to a known and limited group of people. And this view is often called limited atonement. Um, I, I think maybe a better term would be particular atonement or particular redemption. And that's the idea that on the cross, Jesus is paying for the particular sins of a particular group of people, the, the elect, the elect. Uh, one way that some people uh, describe this is the atonement is sufficient for all, but only efficient for some. And it's worth noting that Christians on, on both sides of this, this issue find Bible verses to support their position. Um, but I think a good general principle for biblical interpretation is to use the, the more restrictive and, and clearly defined verses to interpret those that are more broad in their context. So, for example, uh, we read here in verse 28 that Jesus is going to give his life as a ransom for many. We read the same thing in Mark 10.45, a ransom for many. We read in John 10.15 that Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Now, those sheep are known. They're defined as sheep before they even hear the shepherd's voice. And it is only for the sheep that Jesus lays down his life. He's not laying down his life for the goats or for the wolves or, or, or for the, the false shepherds. It's for the sheep only. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus became human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, consider the Old Testament context there. Who were the Old Testament priests making sacrifices for? It wasn't the Canaanites, it wasn't the Moabites, it wasn't any of the Gentile nations. The Old Testament priests made sacrifices on behalf of the Israelites and of that nation alone. And in fact, that Greek word there, sins of the people, 
That's a very interesting Greek word, and, and it defines a group of people. It's not cosmos, it's not the world, it's not ethnos, it's not nations in general, it's not anthropos, humanity in general, it's laos, a defined group, a defined nation. And that's what Hebrews 2.17 says Christ is making propitiation for his people, his covenant people, who are known by God and who receive the effectual work of Christ for them. So when we come to other verses, like 1 John 2.2, which says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, or 1 Timothy 2.6, which says Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, what do we do? Do we have a contradiction here? Uh, do we have verses disagreeing with each other in the Bible? Um, no, not at all. I would say, given the clarity and the number of verses that describe Christ's ransom as particular and limited for his elect people and effectually applied to them, since those verses are, are more numerous and more clear, we should bring those to bear on the verses that seem to indicate otherwise. Unfortunately, both these verses, 1 John 2.2, 1 Timothy 2.6, they can be explained in the same way. Not that Christ is literally a propitiation or a ransom for every single person, because if we follow that down the rabbit trail, we end up in universalism. If Christ is making atonement for the sins of all people, the logical conclusion is that all people should receive that atonement. Or the implication is that Jesus unnecessarily suffered for sins and made atonement that would never be applied to anybody. Um, I don't have time for it this morning, but um, the Puritan John Owen has a very uh, clear, concise, and interesting argument about how limited atonement really is the only biblically and logically consistent view. Um, it's worth looking up John Owen's argument on that. Instead, when we look at those verses, we should understand them to say that Jesus is the ransom or propitiation for all kinds of people. Not every individual, but all kinds of people. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman. That all kinds of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are being ransomed by Christ. Not every individual. Wherever you land on that debate, the point in the text is the same. Jesus, the perfect, glorious Son of God, is preparing to give up his life for sinners in Jerusalem, for those who do not deserve his grace and glory. That's the model he calls his disciples to follow. And that's the model he calls you and I to follow, that we are called as his disciples to suffer as Christ did before our eternal reward. And we're called to humble service, just as Christ came to serve us. So in light of all of that, how, how do you view suffering now? I hope that you view it as nothing less than an opportunity to become more like Christ. To follow in his footsteps, to partake in the self-denial he calls each of his disciples to in order that we might lay down our lives for others and count them as more significant than ourselves. And in God's eyes, that is truly great. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we praise you and we thank you for your abundant mercy. Lord Jesus, we truly cannot fathom your humility. That though you are in the form of, of God, equal with the Father, enjoying glory from eternity, that you willingly took on the form of a slave, taking on humanity, subjecting yourself to disgrace and mockery, 
to great suffering and even unto death, death on a cross. And Lord, you did that, that your Father would be glorified, as we heard in John 17 this morning. And you did that, that we would be ransomed, redeemed from the curse of the law, reconciled to God, our sins being atoned for and forgiven, that we might know you, the true and living God. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider your own example and life and love and that we would seek to live that same thing out, Lord, before others. Help us, Lord, to deny ourselves and make ourselves like slaves or servants to to others, that they might see the love of Christ in us and that we might bring great glory to you. And we give you all honor and praise, Lord Jesus, for you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And you alone are worthy of honor and praise of being enthroned. And we simply marvel that we get to participate with you in that. Lord, we thank you and pray all this in your name. Amen.